welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us about the preparation of the temptation in the garden. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, if you turn in your Bible to this great chapter, so important, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're only going to read the first eight verses here, so follow along in Genesis chapter 3. I'll start here in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Question mark. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil, or good and bad. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool, the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. We've been studying here in these first two chapters about what's about to happen. This is really kind of building up to this a little bit. I mean, God knew that Adam and Eve were going to face this monumental temptation here in the garden. And we knew also, because some of you cheated and you read ahead <laughs> in the book, And so we knew it was coming in chapter 3. And knowing what was coming in chapter 3 has shaped our study of chapters 1 and 2. Why? Because God never wanted Adam and Eve to sin, to fall in the temptation. He wanted them to stand strong in the temptation. So what did God do in order to keep Adam and Eve from falling in the temptation? He prepared them for the temptation. And that's what's shaped our study as we've looked at chapters 1 and 2. He provided for man to face this temptation and not fall against it. And we got a very telling clue that God was preparing them for this temptation in chapter 2, verse 18, when God said something wasn't good. I mean, what could not be good? Everything was good. Everything God made was good. He kept saying it was good. It was good as a good. And all of a sudden, something wasn't good. And it wasn't good for what? Well, was it not good? For a man to what? It wasn't good for a man to be alone. And so we're thinking about how God prepared man for the temptation. And our focus now is on when God said in the midst of this preparation that it was not good for man to be alone. And the word alone is a very revealing word. In the Hebrew, it's a root word, badad. That's easy to remember because it's like the word bad. It was badad, bad, bad. It means to separate or to divide, or to, it, it, there's actually another word, badal, but it's very similar. It's, it means to separate. And so let's take a look at some of the places where that word is used. Turn to Leviticus chapter 13, verse 46. What are we doing? We're trying to get a feel for this word that God used here 
Okay? Now this is talking about the leper. And it says, All the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled, he is unclean, he shall dwell alone. Badad. He shall dwell alone. Without the camp shall his habitation be separated. You see, God had separated one of this, this leper had to be separated from the camp. And that's the word that he used. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 12, another use of this word. And so here it's speaking in a totally different context where it says, so the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. So here is totally the opposite thought, is that God is saying, now God separated, separated from all the other idols. He alone did lead them. And the people were separated also to God. They were divided off. So you feel this word, badad. It means the separation, whether it's the congregation, from the leper from the congregation, or whether it's God separate from all the other idols. And, and so when we hear, when God says it's not good for man to be separated, and we use that term also when we say a couple is separated, what happens? It brings to us this horrible feeling inside of this void and this emptiness as we hope they come back. And what's the opposite of the word separation? We hope they come back what? Unity, together. That we hope they come back together. And that was the other wonderful Hebrew root word that we learned also. And does anybody remember that word for together is? Echad. That's the other wonderful word that we saw right from the beginning there. The echad, the echadness, the coming together of it all. Expressing the triunity of the Elohim triune Godhead and an echadness. That was the goal. That's the goal that God has for our congregation, our assembly here this morning. He doesn't care how large our building is. He doesn't care how beautiful it may be. He doesn't care how many people are here. He cares about one thing, and that's the word echad. And that's what you get from Psalm 137, where it says, Behold, this, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what? Unity. Unity. Echad. That's the word. That's right. And the echad is so important. Now we saw this in the context of the great meaning of that word in the context of marriage at the end of uh, chapter 2 where it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be what? One, echad, flesh, one flesh. You know, the world has, the, the cleave together, that's the describing the act of marriage. The world has such a lame description for the act of marriage. They had sex. I don't even know what that means, and I don't want us to go there this morning. But it's so lame, you know, but, but God doesn't describe it that way. He describes it, he says, defraud, in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, it says, defraud not one another except it be for a time of consent that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and then it says, and come together again that Satan tempt you not for his unconsciousness. That's the Bible's description of the act of marriage. Come together, coming together. These the little children. A little child sees two animals breeding, and what does he say? Mommy, look, they're copulating. He doesn't say that. He says, look, Mommy, they're together. They're come together. That's how God describes it. doesn't sound so scandalous that way. All right, so where are we? I have no idea. Okay, right, Genesis 2.18, that's where we are. Now, 
Literally, this means that it's not good for man to be in his separation, in his aloneness. That's the word there. And so that was also the word, by the way, that God used in Genesis 1-4 when he saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. That's the same word, okay? So we see this word all throughout Scripture. God describes his people He calls them this in Leviticus 20, verse 24. He says, I have separated you from other people. He says, I have separated you. And he even talked about animals that he separated as unclean. So it wasn't good for a man to be alone, to be separated from his mate. So God prepared for man, Eve. To face this temptation, God prepared for me. You may say, well, Eve wasn't a help at all. Oh, yes, she was. Because have you ever considered how Eve is a bit of a stop, Adam? This is your last chance to not fall. You've just observed how someone has fallen in Eve. Now is a chance for you to pull her up, not to, not to go down. All right, anyway, there's another place where the use of Badat is very important. And turn with that as Bill you are really getting to this in Isaiah 59.2. So turn with that. I'm glad you brought that up, Bill, about how they separated themselves in the garden. But look at Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2, where in verse 1 you can start, where it says, Behold, in other words, look at this. The Lord's hand is not shortened. God does not have a crippled. He doesn't have a short hand. He cannot save. Neither is ear heavy that he cannot hear. So he doesn't have a hearing problem either. But it says, your iniquities have a dull. They've separated you. They have separated you between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So who's been separated from who in Isaiah 59.2? Who? God and man. That's it. Us from God. And, and, and it wasn't good for a man to be separated from God. Just like with Adam, it, it was not good for him to be separated or alone. So before God gave to Adam, Eve, we know that this meant when he says he wasn't good, that there was an incompleteness with Adam. Adam was incomplete without Eve. And so he needed Eve in order to make him complete. Now, what do we learn from what God did for man? God is concerned that man should be complete. Now, that's why he made the woman to complete man. In the same way, after the creation of man, God was concerned that man not just have animal-type life, So he put into man a special God life, the breath of God, or the spirit of God. He filled man with the spirit of God, so he wouldn't be like the animals. And this also made man complete. It's not written this way, but you could just as well think to yourself, it's not that it could have been written, it's not good that man should not have God's life inside of him. It's not good that man should not have the Spirit of God inside of him. So I will breathe into him or fill him with my spirit. That's what that was all about. Breathing into man the breath of life and he became a living soul. So God is always looking for what is not good in our lives. In other words, what we are lacking, 
what we need in order to be complete. He's looking for that, and he's providing for what we need. He provided the Spirit of God. He provided Eve for man because he knew that he was going to need these if he was going to stand against the temptation that was coming. Now, this helps us to understand a passage like Ephesians chapter 6. To turn, if you would, to that. Now, here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, very familiar passage here about the whole armor of God. And it's interesting that twice it's referred to as the whole armor of God. Not just the armor of God, but the whole armor of God. In other words, an emphasis on the need for all the parts, a completeness was needed. And he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Let me just stop there and ask you a question. Just like God saw that Adam was going to have to face his future, which was the temptation that we're on the brink of here in chapter 3 of Genesis. God sees that you and I are going to have to face in our future, our Genesis chapter 3, and how is it described in Ephesians 6, 11 through 12? What is the description of our, of our temptation? What do we have to face? Wiles. First, we have to face the wiles of the devil. What are wiles? Wiles are tricks or traps of the devil. You and I have to face the traps of the devil, the tricks of the devil. What's the second thing we have to face? Powers. We have to face rulers. We have to face off to wickedness. And the activity that we will be engaged in with them is called what? Wrestling type of warfare, wrestling, close, sweaty, hand-to-hand, throw them, slam them on the ground, wrestling. I never wrestled, but anyway, that's what it looks like to me. That's what he's describing here, wrestlings. So just as God provided Adam with the Spirit, and God provides us here with what? His strength and his might. His strength and his might. And then we get a complete description of the armor, don't we? In verse 13, he says, Take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore. And by the way, what's our goal in this battle? And it's mentioned three times here. In case you didn't get it the first time, he says the second and the third time. Stand, stand, stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Girt about with truth. So God has provided for us the Bible. Our loins girt about with truth. Objective truth. We can know. We can know. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said to the woman at the well there? You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, he said. That was the... Like the world with the knowledge of God, his people to the nations without the knowledge of God, he says, he says, we know. How do we know? Because we have objective truth right here. Because we, not because I said so, not because somebody else says so, not because some commentator says so, but because God has given to us the Bible so we can know. How great is that, that we can know? That's what it means, the gird about with truth. 
Tom, that was interesting today about how you pointed out that God foresees the battles that we'll face, and it's all based on that knowledge that he prepares for us. Now, didn't Elijah face a lot of battles in his life? And Elijah is a great example for us to see how God took care of him, how God prepared for him, and to be so encouraged by what we see. It says in 1 Kings 17, 1 through 6, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab. That's important words. Here we see the picture. Elijah the man of God, speaking, looking right in the eyes of the rebel against God, of the child of the devil here, this, the Ahab. It says, and, he, and Elijah said, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these 40 years, but according to my word. So he is withstanding Ahab to his face, a very, very deep, deep, terrible battle, a challenge. And we know that Elijah was, as it says, in, in uh, Peter, a man subject to like passions like as we are. In other words, he was subject to discouragement, subject to frustration, subject to depression. And this was a very, very draining thing for him. So then in verse 2, we find the Lord coming. And he says, And the word of the Lord came unto him, that's unto Elijah, saying, Get thee hence, turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherish, which is before Jordan. So God's instructions to Elijah to prepare him is, Elijah, at ease now, my son, and you go now and you hide yourself by the brook Cherish. And he says here in verse 4, And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So God cared for Elijah in such a way that his drink was provided for, his food was provided for. And in verse 5 it says, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook church with his before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. It's very, very important that it's noted here that the ravens came twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, and they brought him. What a sight that must have been. Ravens, crows, flying. Who knows where they got this from? Bread and flesh. It's bird delivered, raven delivered onto onto his table every morning, every evening, and he had drink. You know what that shows us? God cares for us in the details of our meals, of our food, as we see in the case of of Elijah there. It's very, very encouraging. Wow, what a picture to think about the food that was delivered there that God gives us. And, you know, the other person who comes to my mind, uh, apart from Moses, was Joshua. Uh, What do we know about how God prepared Joshua for the battle that he had to face? And Joshua had to face a lot of battles because when Moses turned the baton over to Joshua and said, now you take the people into the land, we know that Joshua faced one battle after the other. And so Joshua commented on how God had prepared him in Joshua chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, where Joshua said, and now behold, the Lord hath kept me alive. As he said, these 40 and 5 years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, lo, I am this day 
fourscore and five years old. As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me, as my strength was then, so even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. See what uh, Joshua said is he said, behold, now look at this. He says, the Lord has kept me alive. You know, all the battles, he's kept them alive. And he says, it's been 40 and five years. And said, and so he, that's 40 of those years was wandering in the desert and now five years. And he says, I'm 85 years old today. And then he says, the amazing thing is, is that God has me today at 85, just as strong as I was when, when I went out uh, as one of the spies 45 years ago. So in other words, when Joshua was 40 years old, he was a strong man at 40 years old. And he says now he's 85 years old and he's just as strong as he was then. So not only did the Lord keep him alive, the Lord kept his strength. And that was preparation, miraculous preparation. Why? Because God had a job for Joshua to do, and God provided not only his life to do it in, but also his strength that he needed. That's our God. He looks at every detail of what we'll need and provides for us. Now, there's another example, and that is in the case of the children of Israel, where even as something as simple as, well, let me read it for you. Deuteronomy 2, 7. For the Lord thy God hath blessed thee in all the works of thy hands. He knoweth thy walking through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord thy God hath been with thee. Thou hast lacked nothing. That was in Deuteronomy 2, 7. So God specifically says, I am conscious of the steps that you were taking, the walking and then he says later on in Deuteronomy 8, 4, thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. So God said, have you taken time to look at your feet? Have you really seen how they're not swelling? Why are they not swelling? Because I know you're walking. I know you're walking and I'm making sure that your foot doesn't swell. Not only that, I know that you can't go to stores and buy new clothes here. I'm making sure that your clothes don't wax old. They wore those same clothes, or I don't know if it's the same clothes, but anyway, they had a limited amount of clothing for 40 years, and none of it got old. What kind of clothes do we have that last for 40 years if it's worn almost regularly as they had to? He said, I'm taking care of your feet. They don't swell. I'm taking care of your clothes. They're not getting old. And in Deuteronomy 29.5, he said, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes are not waxing old upon you. And thy shoe is not waxing old upon thy foot. So they were probably wearing the same shoes for 40 years. What shoe would not wear out after 40 years? The shoe that God has his eye on because he says, I know you're walking through this great wilderness. This brings us tremendous encouragement. Why? Because we have here so graphically pointed out for us a God-knowing God. In other words, our God knows what we're going through. Our God prepares what we're going through for what we're going to go through. And our God provides for us while we're going in it, even down to the level of feet swelling. That's wonderful about God. And that should be a cause for us to thank God and to take time, as he was saying to the Israelites, 
Take time to think about the fact your foot didn't swell, your clothes didn't wear out, your shoe is not waxed old. And so it is for us. We need to look and see what God has done for us. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Name them one by one, whether it's feet, clothes, or whatever. Now, here's the issue here. This is the God of Israel. How tragic to think that the Jewish people today don't know this God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. We in Southern California here have a job for you in Los Angeles area, San Diego, Riverside, Orange County, to go door to door to the Jewish people. This is a paid full-time job. If you would like to, or if you know somebody who would like to, carry the good news that their God still cares for them, then call us at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Thank you for joining us today. Join us again tomorrow as Tom Cantor continues our Genesis study. Now, as you've heard Tom Cantor speak about today, Israel Restoration Ministries is looking for full-time couriers in the Southern California area to take the gospel to the lost Jewish people. If you're interested in going door-to-door to to reach these lost Jewish people, please contact us today at 1-800-247-3051. Once again, that's 1-800-247-3051. Call us at that same number if you've got a neighbor or friend or family member that's Jewish that you'd like to reach with the gospel. 1-800-247-3051. You can also contact us for Tom Cantor DVDs, resources, materials, books, or videos to help reach lost Jewish people, or to help grow your friendship with God, 1-800-247-3051, or go to israelrestoration.org or friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Israel Restoration Ministries and Tom Cantor on Facebook and receive a daily devotional there from Tom Cantor. You can also email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow at the same time.